thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and coming up this week, scientists test out a new universal flu vaccine that fights all flus and lasts for several years. Why Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon might hold the melodic key to the ultimate night-night lullaby and... Mice participate in this behavioural called coprophagy, uh, which they kind of uh, ingest their their own faeces. Scientists send mice into space to find out why astronauts get osteoporosis. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. SpaceX's Starship, the most powerful space rocket ever built, has unfortunately blown up shortly after its launch in Texas. SpaceX is owned by one of the world's richest men, that's Elon Musk, and he said his team will try again in the coming months. But does the latest setback leave his space ambitions in tatters? With us now is science journalist and presenter of the Space Boffins podcast, that's Richard Hollingham. Good to have you with us, Richard, to tell us what's going on. What's happened? It blew up. But before that, it was, I would say, a successful launch. So this enormous rocket, 120 metres tall, all 33 engines fired. It dragged itself off the launch pad and all seemed to be going well until about three minutes into the mission. And this is a massive rocket, at which point the two parts of it, the upper stage, which has these little wings on the top, looks like a proper, proper starship, um, failed to separate from the, the lower stage. And then around four minutes into the flight, it blew up. Now, it probably blew up automatically with an automatic system or engineers triggered it to blow up because by that time, the mission was was failing. Also, by that time, sort of part way into the mission, um, not all 33 engines were firing. So 27 of the 33 were firing. But I mean, nevertheless, it's an extraordinary engineering achievement to get something like this off the ground at all. And they absolutely considered it a success. And I love the engineering speak phrase they used for the explosion. They called it rapid, unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> it's like when someone falls from a great height and says they suffer deceleration injury. Uh, it's another way of saying you're a splat. But no one was hurt in this, were they? I mean, this was unmanned. No one was hurt. No people No people on board. Um, I mean, that was one of the great achievements because, I mean, Elon Musk had been, you know, they'd not been building this up. He'd been very much managing expectations in his tweets over the last few weeks about this launch. It had already been postponed. It looked like it was almost going to be 
postponed again one of the big fears was it would blow up on the launch pad and then you're back years probably to just having to rebuild the launch pad and that whole ground infrastructure around it but the fact that it it got off the ground it reached 39 kilometers above the earth um they're actually i mean there was a round of applause in mission control so they're very much considering this a success the next step and the next step will be another attempted launch of another starship they got several waiting in a few months time once they've figured out exactly what went wrong and just briefly richard why do they need this rocket what's it going to do what's the ambition for it well, the initial ambition is to make money. So uh, Elon Musk wants to launch an awful lot of satellites. It can launch 150 tonnes worth of satellites into orbit. Um, uh, more uh, long term, he wants to carry people in this. It can carry up to 100 people. NASA have uh, contracted SpaceX to use Starship to land its astronauts on the moon as part of its Artemis program so it's needed in the next few years at least the upper stage is needed for that and ultimately elon musk wants to set up settlements on mars so starships are destined to carry people to mars ultimately well we wish him luck with his relaunch richard thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to speed richard hollingham there from the space boffins podcast Are we a step closer to a universal flu vaccine that blocks any flu and lasts for several years? Well, that's the hope. And scientists in America have homed in on certain parts of the outer coat of the influenza virus, which are the same in many different forms of flu. And because those regions can't change, because if they did, it would affect the ability of the virus to infect and grow, the vaccine that they're trying to make can provide long-term protection against lots of different types of flu. This week, they published the results of their first clinical trial of the approach in humans. Kareem Bok is the deputy director at the NIH Vaccine Research Centre. Influenza virus is very, very smart, and I would say even much smarter than coronaviruses. They have many, many tools at their disposal to evolve, to change, to avoid being targeted by our immune system. The virus is essentially sidestepping immunity by looking different because it's changed? Yes. So even though we've been vaccinated or even caught flu previously, that doesn't endow us with defence against a virus that now looks different. Exactly. It's like almost as if you were uh, getting in touch with a new virus, a new influenza every year. So what we have to do is study very carefully the virus at the microscopic level and try to find pieces of that virus that do not change. Uh, There are some pieces of the virus that are either more hidden from our immune system or the virus is not able to change that part because it would mean catastrophic consequences for their growth. If those components of the virus that don't change, these so-called conserved areas, are in all these flu viruses and they're already there, why don't we make our own immune response when we catch flu against those so that we are immune to all future flus? Another great question. And the answer to that is because the virus is very smart and the most exposed parts of the virus, the ones that our immune system sees first, are the ones that we are most likely to react to and are the ones that the virus changes every year. I suppose then there are two issues here. One is you've got to find a way to make the immune system respond to these bits of the virus that it wouldn't normally respond to because the virus hides them. So you've got to disclose them in some way. And then you've got to prove that once you've 
got that immune response to those bits, that it is a protective immune response. Exactly, yeah. And how have you achieved each of those aims? Let's start with the how have you made the immune system see what was formerly invisible on the virus, that it kept hidden so we wouldn't react to it? So this is a very cool process, and it's the same process actually we used to make the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. We call them designer vaccines because it's the first time we go to the smallest part of a virus. We say we don't like the way the virus has built this part of their outside. We're going to try to rebuild it ourselves in the lab, and we're going to try to use that as a vaccine. So we're not only saying we're going to target the conserved parts of the virus. We're also redesigning the virus somehow because we think if we redesign it, the immune system will respond better. And by redesigning, we mean we also use another word, which is stabilizing. We really cut parts of the virus that we don't want to be there, and we redesign it to be a stable vaccine so the immune system sees it and and has an immune response. What's in the tin then? What's going on? Do you you take the gene that corresponds or the piece of genetic information that corresponds to the thing you want and make cells make that, Mm -hmm. which you then purify with your modifications intact and that's what you're giving the patient in order to see if the immune system will respond? So in order to build a new building, you need to know how to build buildings, right? So first we have to study the virus itself to see how it's built. And then, as you said, we take that gene for that part of the virus and we modify the gene already before putting it into the cells. And we grow it and then we purify it and we use it as part of our vaccine. And then how do you address part two, which was proving that when you expose a person or an animal or whatever to that modified protein that you've made, it is protective and it it is protective in the long term, which is your goal, against lots of different types of flu. This study that we just published is the first attempt to vaccinate humans. And as you know, uh, the first time you vaccinate a human is just to establish the safety of the vaccine. So we haven't been able to test that in humans, but in animals and in the lab, in cells, we know that it blocks the virus. So there is proof, at least in our hands, that this part of the virus in a vaccine is able to generate the kind of immune response that we would like in a vaccine. And does that include not just longevity of the response, which was one of your goals, but also if I come along with a completely different kind of flu and expose a vaccinated individual to that, that they would be protected? Yeah. And what we've been able to understand is that you have, or the animal that's immunized with this vaccine has an immune response to other types of flu that are not present in the vaccine. And that is a breakthrough, which is uh, what we're excited about. Very exciting. And the study that Kareem Bock was just talking about there has just come out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. People around the world are this week holding events to mark Earth Day 2023 as efforts continue to raise awareness around the subject of climate change. The Natural History Museum in London want the public to join them in a major new community science project which aims to investigate the link between noise pollution and insect populations. And with that in mind, we set our colleague Will Tingle loose on the streets of North West Cambridge. But first, the Natural History Museum's Abigail Lowe explains a bit about the background to the initiative. 
Nature Overheard is the Natural History Museum's latest community science project where we're asking as many people as possible to join an effort to better understand the impact of noise pollution on wildlife near roads. And so anyone can get involved um, by recording sound and sightings of insects near roads and streets. And we can use this information to make streets more wildlife friendly. And we launch on Earth Day, April 22nd. So it's a perfect opportunity to link the two things together, do some community science, do your bit, connect to your local nature and yeah, become a scientist. We're hoping to look at how the levels of noise pollution are affecting insect abundances and distributions. But not only that, we can work to identify insect sounds from the audio recordings. So there's been a lot of work already on training algorithms to identify bird species from audio, but we're developing the technology now to be able to do the same for insects. So it's a really exciting project for people to get involved in. Well, it sounds like Will she'll have to have a go. Well then, James, it's time to do some more citizen science for the people. My favourite. We've got a stringent checklist to go through here before we get started. Would you mind checking for me that it's between 10 and 4pm? Affirmative. Good. Are we near a road? Yeah. Good. Is it warmer than 13 degrees? I'll spoil it for you now. It is warmer than 13 degrees. And is it only a light wind? Yeah, verging on gusty we'll do our best what's left to do now then is to walk along this road take some audio recordings for our friends at the natural history museum and if we spot any insects try and call them out photograph them and id them let's go oh oh no you're right you're right (laughs) not one (laughs) they're not easy to identify when they're moving around so quickly that's all right you got me james so, so there was a solitary bee, a brimstone butterfly, two hoverflies. We're off to a flying start. And we've got a lot of gnats flying around. More butterflies, James. What are you? Oh, that's a peacock butterfly. Delightful. Oh, now this is a curios, James. Look at this. It looks like a bee, but it's actually a fly. Guess what it's called? <laughs> I don't know, it's got a long nose, though. It does have a lot... Wow, don't say nose, James. It has a long proboscis. But it's a bee fly. It's interesting. It's a fly pretending to be a bee so that nothing will eat it. How are the non-zoologically trained among us supposed to identify all these creatures? You'll be pleased to know that the Natural History Museum have handily given everyone a nice insect invertebrate guide for them to follow on the website if they want to take part in this why are we looking for bugs and insects in particular why not other aspects of wildlife excellent question james insects are really important for maintaining a healthy environment they have many roles they're predators they're parasites they pollinate flowers which gives us food and crops and things like that so insects are really important but we don't know a lot of things about them so we need to research more into them and one of the things that is under researched is the impact of what noise pollution has on them The community science programme, Nature Overheard, is unique because it was co-designed by students across the UK. So we gathered hundreds of questions from across the UK and we narrowed them down to the question, which was how can we make roads better for nature? 
And we ran a series of workshops to sort of refine and develop that question a little bit further. And that is how we we ended up on the idea of investigating road noise pollution. And we were very lucky at the museum to have Ed Baker, who's an acoustic biology researcher. So he looks at sound recordings and that tries to identify wildlife from them. So it sort of all just worked out really well, really. It was amazing that the students had identified this problem as something that they were really interested in. What are you planning to do with all of this data once you've collected it and identified what's going on in it? Nature Over Here is going to run for two years. For the first year, we're very much going to be looking at some you know, basic acoustic indices relating to what people are seeing on the roads. And then the technology for identifying things like birds from acoustic data is fairly well developed. But being able to identify insects from it is not quite there. And so we need to gather lots of audio recordings so that we can start to train the algorithms. The information that we collect, we, you know, we'll use it to, sh- to share with road developers and councils and local communities about how we can try and make the sides of roads better. Well, James, I would like to put that down as a pretty good success. Yeah, it was a lovely way to spend an hour. Absolutely. And I think that hopefully the data we've collected here can be added to the mosaic that uh, the Natural History Museum are putting together in tracking the distribution of insects near our roads. Will Tingle from The Naked Scientists. He was speaking with Abigail Lowe from the Natural History Museum. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, are Cambridge's Fenlands having a detrimental effect on the environment? But first, you might think the children's classics Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and Puff the Magic Dragon are the best lullabies to help soothe small ones to sleep, but might there be a superior sound? The founder of the British Academy of Sound Therapy, Liz Cooper, has produced a new research-based lullaby in collaboration with a top music producer, and she's been speaking to our man, Will Tingle. Basically, I collaborated with a really good producer called Silky um, and uh, we, we worked over Zoom on the piece. And I, at one point I saw him looking down and uh, while we were playing the piece back and I thought, he's texting, he's on his phone and he's texting, not paying attention. And, uh, and at the end of the piece, he looked up and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I just dozed off for a minute there. <laughs> well, I was actually going to mention that my sister has uh, had a kid fairly recently he's coming up to sort of nine months and he's in that window where they won't sleep so i'm going to forward <laughs> it to them and and i'll give you some feedback definitely yeah absolutely we'd love to hear from anybody that uses it brilliant on the subject of sound therapy to take a step backwards from this individual project when you do sound therapy what elements work best or does that depend on what you're hoping to achieve it really does depend on the the intended therapeutic outcome. Now, of, of course, there's never any guarantee, but we've done 
quite a lot of research at the British Academy of Sound Therapy over the last 20 years. And we've developed formula that uh, are based really on the way that the brain is wired to respond to sound. So what we're mainly aiming for in what we might call a passive session, which is where a client comes in, we obviously take a full case history, we ask them what it is they'd like to work on, they lay down on a treatment table, so like a massage couch, and we make them all lovely and comfortable. And then we begin to play and we'll play continuously uh, for around about 30 to 40 minutes. And the, the, if you like, sonic prescription that we put together will, one, be designed to help people to go into a deep, altered state of consciousness. So that's a very, very deep, relaxed state. Um, almost like that lovely, fuzzy place just, just when you're about to wake up or when you're about to go to sleep. Um, so people are still conscious but drifting in that place. And our research has shown that there's lots of lovely positive benefits to health and well-being when we're when we're in that place for a sustained period of time. There's a lot going on in it. It's a very multi-layered piece of audio. How did you decide what to put in that track? <laughs> well, that's a good that's a really good question. First of all, obviously we have our we have our brief. So the idea is we need we know that we need to do our best to induce sleep. Um, and so, but we're also appealing to a particular audience, in this case, babies. So babies are, you know, if they're very newborn, um, then they'll be used to the sort of safety sounds like the womb sounds. Now, even big babies like adults, <laughs> for example, because at the end of the day, we are all, you know, big babies, really. We have that memory of being in the womb. And so that's one of the reasons why we find those lovely watery sounds, the white noisy sounds of waterfalls, ocean sounds, really very relaxing. Um, and so with this particular piece, we... For me, the, the design that I created was to start off by allowing that safety, that feeling of safety to happen. Uh, we took out a lot of the high frequencies because low frequencies relax. A lot of the work that I do involves lots of and layering up of textures, beautiful drifting soundscapey sounds. I feel incredibly relaxed after that, appropriately enough too. That was Liz Cooper. She is from the British Academy of Sound Therapy. She was in conversation with her own Will Tingle. One downside of being one of the few lucky scientists who get sent into space is that when you return to Earth, you might be left with the skeleton of a 70-year-old. That's assuming you weren't 70 already. And that's because the natural remodelling our bones go through gets disrupted when our bodies are exposed to microgravity, like you find in space. And you can lose between 1% and 2% density of your bones for every month that you're up there. Why this happens, though? scientists aren't entirely sure, but they think it might have something to do with changes in our microbiome, the trillions of bacteria that live inside us. To help to get to the bottom of this, UCLA's Joe Bedry studied the simultaneous changes to the microbiome 
and bone density of mice that were sent to the International Space Station. He hopes that his research, as well as helping astronauts, might help the millions of people around the world suffering from bone loss conditions like osteoporosis. Naked scientist James Titko was the man he spoke to. What's really cool is NASA has this device called the Rodent Habitat. It almost looks like a, a giant computer case where the mice can kind of live and has sophisticated sensors and other kind of cameras and, and things along those lines. However, since you're in microgravity, the fecal matter that we analyzed wasn't able to be actively sampled. And so at the end of the experiment, we had to acquire those samples and then did a kind of time point analysis there. And can you sum up the, well, your findings, the change in the microbiomes of these mice that you'd sent into space? The microbiomes were relatively similar between flight and ground, except for a handful of species. And two species in particular, Lactobacillus and Durea, were elevated in the flight group, which was really interesting. We see these changes in microbes. We see their ability to potentially contribute to some of these metabolites that we detected. And then we saw that the bone homeostasis was changing. And so we thought, Perhaps this is just the host responding to microgravity and bone loss, or perhaps it could be an active compensation. But further studies are, are needed to really validate those hypotheses. And you've kind of preempted my question there, Joe, about how you separated cause and affected, whether it was the changes in the microbiome that affected the body of the mice, or whether it was the changes in the bone density of the mice that changed the microbiome? As much as I do love uh, microbiology and uh, the microbiome, I think my kind of scientific hunch, although I don't have evidence to prove this right now, is that it's probably the body that's influencing the microbiome and it could be a response. Uh, so one other piece of information that I think is really important is that mice participate in this behavioral called coprophagy, uh, which they kind of uh, ingest their their own feces, which in microgravity they're not able to do. Lovely. I know it's it's uh, quite an interesting process, but it's another way where they can kind of reintroduce microorganisms from the environment. And so, while that is an aberration from normal behavior, it also offered a really unique opportunity, a kind of almost a selection event in this unique environmental exposure. So again, you know, we'll, we'll need to see if we can. Uh, evaluate whether these microorganisms could actually mitigate bone loss. Just so I have understood, correct me if I've got this wrong, you saw the microbiome increase in diversity of the mice you sent into space. And usually you'd associate that with, you know, health benefits, if anything. But is it kind of unique that you've seen it actually have a detriment to health in this case? Yeah, that's uh, you're you're asking all of the great questions, and and I think this is a really great moment to kind of take a step back because this is a unique environment, and you really literally have gravitational forces that are affecting all of these different cellular processes. Given that context, you know, really at the end of the day, this is just a, a selection pressure on the microbes, and so whether the diversity increases in this case, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to kind of confer a particular health benefit or health loss. 
but the microbes are responding to this environment. Uh, and then there's a multitude of different biological processes that are changing. Many scientists argue that the microbiome is one of the most overlooked things, and it's a good thing we're now studying it. We should regard it, they say, as an organ in its own right. That was Joe Bedry in conversation with James Titko. You can read all about that research in the journal Cell Reports. Now, when we talk about fighting climate change, you most often hear about efforts to reduce the quantity of fossil fuels that we burn. And what you don't often hear so much about is the contribution of farmland to greenhouse gas emissions. Nowhere is this subject more relevant, though, than right here on our doorstep in Cambridgeshire, because close by are the Fens. This is a 4,000 square kilometre area of what was formerly marshy and swampy soil that's now very fertile. It accounts for about a third of the vegetables that we grow in the UK, just produced in this one region. Until the 1600s, it was just low-lying swamp, and it took Dutch engineers coming in to bring it under control, drain it, and then turn it into the productive farmland that it is today. The soil that emerged from that drainage was, as a result of its past history, very carbon-rich, and that means that microbes in the earth now break down that carbon and release vastly more CO2 and methane than equivalent farm soil would. This has negative impacts on farming yields potentially as well as on the planet and here to tell us a bit more about it is Tom Marquand who has been conducting a research project into the Fens at the University of Cambridge. What was the goal of doing this? Why, why did you want to look at the Fens specifically Tom? In general we have a pretty good understanding of the very basic principle that when you remove the water from the soil you allow air to get deeper into the soil and that brings in brings with it a lot of oxygen that's what the microbes need to break down that soil carbon and release a lot of co2 and that's what they're doing right now that basic picture is well established what we don't have such a good handle on is the nuances how does the temperature affect it how does it vary seasonally specifically if I raise the water table by 10 centimetres, what is the number? How much less CO2 is emitted? Those are really important things to have a strong grasp on if you want to make informed policy decisions in the future. So you've effectively got the makings of a model of how this sort of environment, A, works, and when we change it or do something to it, what the anticipated outcome would be. That's the dream. Yeah. You know, we, me and my collaborators, we're not the decision makers but what we really hope to be able to do is to produce a body of evidence that's really well grounded in cutting edge research that allows the policymakers in the future to make just really informed decisions about what the future of the fens looks like. It's an important area. It's a, a big area, but it's just one area. The planet's much bigger. Can this be extrapolated from what's going on in the fens to other like environments elsewhere? Does it inform the bigger picture? Definitely. Definitely. I, I think the Fens are a really great place to start with this bigger picture of uh, soil carbon emissions. Globally, human land use accounts for about 4% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a huge contributor overall. And if this is something that we can get more of a handle on, then that would be really useful in the future all over the world. How much emission is coming off the Fens? I've, I've said that it's a lot, but Put some numbers on it. Yeah, so the East Anglian fens on their own account for 400,000 tonnes of carbon being emitted each year. And that's being emitted almost entirely as CO2. 
there's very little methane emissions from the fens, and that's something that you see more in a natural wetland than in a drained one. And so, wh- what would be the ultimate goal then? Would, is it to to work out whether we should re- reflood some parts of the fens? Would that mitigate things? Uh, because obviously, there's a price to pay in food production. If we do re- remove some of it from production to cut down some of that carbon footprint we end up re-importing food from elsewhere with an attached carbon footprint, which may have knocked down a rainforest somewhere to grow. Definitely. I mean, this is the really tricky thing. To some degree, I'm very happy that I am the person putting together the evidence and not the person making the decision, because the decisions that will have to be made about the future of defence will be really difficult ones that have to balance this economic side and food security side with an environmental side and a sustainability side. At the moment, the the Fens are losing peat. So we actually can't carry on as we are, even if we really want to. So we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to and do something. that's why this, this matters. Definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah, like you say, I mean, it's, it's a massive contributor to our food supply. We don't really want to move that abroad. And I, I think what, what most of the people I'm working with and speaking to would really like to see is more sustainable farming practices and a sort of patchwork landscape where maybe some of it can be given over to a wetland and nature reserve for biodiversity and for trapping carbon, and some of it can be farmed in perhaps a more sustainable but still productive way. That's the goal, at least. Well, we wish you luck. And as you say, it's nice to be in the position where you can offer the advice but not have to make the decision. <laughs> Thank Always you very preferable, much. <laughs> isn't it? Thanks very much. That's Tom Marquand from the University of Cambridge. And that's all we have time for this week, but do join us on Tuesday when the weighty subject we'll be delving into then is the diabetes crisis. Why half the world population is overweight and millions have developed diabetes. It's a far more serious pandemic than COVID, so why has it happened and what can we do about it? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.